You're listening to McKinsey's Future of America podcast, featuring conversations inspired by a new era of sustainable and inclusive growth. Welcome to McKinsey's Future of America podcast, where we'll explore how we can build a future that drives sustainable and inclusive growth. Join us in conversation with leaders who are accelerating progress to grow, broaden, and sustain prosperity for more Americans. I'm your host for today, Quaylen. I'm the McKinsey Global Institute Director and a senior partner based in Minneapolis. Today, I'm joined by Dominika Lynch of the Aspen Institute and Bernardo Sichel, a partner here at McKinsey. Dominica leads the Latinos in Society program at the Aspen Institute, and Bernardo is based in Chicago, where he is a leader in McKinsey's consumer goods practice. Dominica and Bernardo, welcome, and thank you for being here today. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background? Dominica, let's start with you. Sure, Quaylen. So I am really excited that I'm part of the Aspen Institute and I head up the Latinos and Society program. And it's really now feels like the pinnacle of my career and everything that I've been doing across the public and private sectors that I've worked in. Uh, but I want to start with a story that I think captures my why and my why at the Aspen Institute as the head of the Latinos and Society program. Um, and this is really as a first-generation college students at the University of Southern California attending a gala where one of our top students was being honored at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel, the Pretty Woman Hotel. And being a guest there and just being inspired by meeting doctors and lawyers, uh, policymakers, um, presidents of universities that were Latino, they looked like me and gave me hope that one day I could be that too. But when the young woman got up there who was a, a peer, and was celebrated for her GPA, celebrated for her dream to becoming a doctor, um, she asked her mother to stand. And she said, you know, this award belongs to my mother, who for the first time in 25 years tonight is not the maid at the hotel, but is an honored guest. And in that moment, um, all the servers came down, they lined up and they had these flowers. And we were all moved to tears. And the recognition that in America, that was possible. From one generation to the next, you can go from being the maid in a hotel as beautiful as the Beverly Wilshire Hotel uh, to having a daughter that was bound to go to medical school. And I wanted to be part of that movement and part of that work. And through my work at USC, at the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute, and now at the Aspen Latinos and Society program, it is about that economic mobility. It is about the American dream and how it benefits us all. So I was inspired then. I'm still inspired when I tell that story. And that is the why behind my work and a lot of what I do. And we'll talk more later about that. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that incredibly touching story. Bernardo, would love to hear a bit more about your background. Thanks, Quellen. Um, so I'm, I'm Bernardo Sitchell. I'm a, a partner at McKinsey uh, in our consumer um, practice. But I think more important than that, I'm a Latino myself as well. I migrated to the U.S. 20 years ago with, uh, with my wife to start uh, a new life uh, from our home country of Venezuela. And we're proud parents of two um, first-generation boys that were born here in the U.S. You know, similar to Dominique, uh, you know, very inspired, again, of my background. And just um, in my case, uh, it was really during the pandemic that I decided to come much more involved with Latino topics. And I raised my hand to be one of the co-authors of the study that we published last year along with Aspen Institute. And so, you know, very happy to be here today sharing the results of that study and sharing a little bit about my own uh, story as well. 
Bernardo, let's begin at a high level. What's the state of play for Latinos in America? And you were a co-author on the report overall. Would love to just understand the highlights. Thanks, Quellen. Yeah, let me provide, first of all, some context on the study itself. So the study is the first major study that McKinsey has done on Latinos. And what we were trying to understand was um, the enablers and barriers of Latino economic mobility and the impact that not only they have on this group, but that they have on the overall economy. And to do that, um, again, we used um, you know secondary data, but we used also a survey of more than 4,000 respondents trying to identify, as I said, the gaps and potential solutions. Um, the key message of the study, and I think it's, it's a critical one, is that, well, there's evidence that Latinos are pursuing and achieving the American dream in terms of upward mobility, greater education, and middle-class stability. The economic parity of Latinos remains elusive for, for this group. And let me provide some detail on the you know, four different um, roles that we studied during this, uh, this report, which is Latinos as workers, Latinos as business owners, Latinos as consumers, and finally, Latinos as savers. Um, you know, everybody knows that Latinos are a fast-growing population, and they will represent one in four Americans by 2050. Um, everybody knows that Latinos are a rapidly growing labor force, that they will be more than five workers by 2030 and one in three by 2060. Uh, what is less known, again, is how dynamic this population is. Latinos have rates of intergenerational mobility comparable to whites, but at the lower segments, it's, it's much higher. So Latinos, if the parents um, are in the 25th percentile, the chances is that their children will be almost uh, by uh, the middle of the road in terms of wealth over time. However, and this goes again to some of the things that we found, is that you know Latino workers have a massive wage gap and underrepresentation in higher paying jobs. Uh, for example, Latinos receive only two thirds of what they would at parity, where all Latino workers were paid the same as whites within occupations. And Latinos that are born in the U.S. represented what they represent as the overall uh, population, which is 18%. The size of this gap is like $300 billion. And that, to put it in perspective, is about half the revenues of uh, you know, a company like, like Walmart. Um, if we go to Latinos as business owners. Um, Latino business owners are growing at a huge rate, but they face huge challenges growing and scaling their businesses. So only 6% of all businesses in the U.S. are owned by, by Latinos. Uh, their revenues are only half of those uh, of their white counterparts, and they have higher failure rates. And access to capital is, is a huge issue. So only one in three of Latinos that go to get funding get approval. And three out of four Latinos have to use their personal funds to be able to uh, start new businesses. If we close this disparity, we're talking about almost opening 800,000 new firms that will create more than 7 million jobs and that has the potential of creating $2.3 trillion in additional revenues to the U.S. economy. And finally, the role to highlight here is Latinos as savers. 
you know, they only have one fifth of the, the wealth of white households, even though they're growing at a 25% increase from one generation to the next. The issue here is low intergenerational transfer. So only 6% of Latino households receive inheritances versus uh, 24% of white households. And when they do, it's only a third of the size. Uh, And this represents a gap that is more than $400 billion, which is comparable to a lot of the assets under management to many of the large um, uh, investment firms. So it, it's, it's a huge deal as well. So those are some of the things that we, uh, that we found in doing this study, very comprehensive. And again, the big picture to bring it back together again is one of growth uh, of, of Latinos, but still a huge gap to fill, uh, especially compared with, with whites, and one that needs to accelerate, if not only this group, but if the U.S. economy is going to achieve its goals in the decades to come. Thank you, Bernardo. Dominica, your program at Aspen states that it's committed to diversity of thought and inclusive growth. Tell us a bit more about your work at Aspen. Our North Star is about wealth creation and wealth building. We understand how the community is so diverse and the needs are going to be unique depending on the geography of where Latinos live. Our approach is both a bottom-up and a top-down. And in 2021, at at the heels of just... uh, Confronting the challenges on the ground with the pandemic, we launched the City Learning in Action Lab and focused really on how could we help with the recovery, equitable recovery of our businesses, and really strengthening the local ecosystems. So we are currently in six Latino-majority cities. Those cities are like Miami, Chicago, El Paso, San Antonio, Phoenix, and San Bernardino. And you know we were led to those cities by members of our board, but also because there are a high population of Latinos there. And in partnership nationally um, with uh, the Drexel University team, um, Bruce Katz, a renowned urbanist, um, we came together to understand how we can organize local leaders so that we can develop a shared understanding of what the local landscape looked like and how could we maximize this moment of federal investments. Uh, because it, it, the community is so diverse, we knew that what would work in Miami would not work in El Paso or San Antonio or Phoenix. So for us, it was important to source local expertise, um, to understand how to bridge the knowledge gaps through peer learning, a community building, and also coaching from national experts. And like I mentioned before, the Aspen Institute's tremendous convening power also uh, allows us to attract investments in areas that have been overlooked, uh, and also to understand what are the policies that need to change to really combat uh, some of the disparities that we see at the local level. So it's been um, a work of collaboration, coordination, and action. And so we're now a year or so into the program, and we have, you know, tremendous, and I'll share more about some of the changes that we're seeing at the local level. Bernardo, what one or two facts from the report stood out to you most? Thanks, Colin. I, I would actually share three. So the, the first one, which is not a fact, but it's the biggest finding, again, that we found is that um, the, the Latino economic mobility is no longer uh, a Latino issue. It's an American one. And if we really want, as a country, to achieve our goals in the decades to come, we need to um, 
improve in a, in a significant way the Latino participation in our economy. So I would say that is the first thing that really stood out to me because it changes completely the narrative that, and, and even the interventions that we need to do. Um, in terms of the positive, uh, the thing that stood out to me is the level of entrepreneurial uh, participation of, of Latinos. The report states that one in 200 Latinos start a new business on a monthly basis. But let me give you two more facts around that. So the growth rate of Latino businesses is more than twice that of, of whites in the U.S. And, and that's just uh, impressive. But the other or, or the, the flip side of that, which is a little bit the negative, is the size of the gaps are just astronomical. And so it really stood out to me that we're talking about, in the case of workers, for example, um, you know, Latino workers at parity are only receiving two thirds of what their counterparts uh, in other demographics, especially whites, are receiving. And if you add that up, uh, you're talking about, in, in the case of workers alone, more than $300 billion of opportunity. So I, I, I would summarize it in those three ways. One is the you know, the big um, so what of the study, if you will, which is this is no longer a demographic issue of one demographic, the Latinos, but much more a national one. Uh, the second one, just how entrepreneurial Latinos are. And the third one, as I said, is, you know, the size of the gaps are still massive and, uh, uh, and uh, need to be addressed in, in a very structural way. What is it that we can do to better support Latino entrepreneurs? So if, if you go um, and look deeper into, into the Latino entrepreneurs, you will see things like Latinos are the most entrepreneurial, yet um, still represent only 6% of total businesses in the U.S. So Latino-owned businesses are only 6%, whereas the population is 18%. So it's only a third of what it should be if you see it from that perspective. From a revenue perspective, uh, Latino-owned businesses um, have only half the revenues of businesses owned by, by whites in the U.S. And from uh, access to capital perspective, uh, Latino businesses um, use 75% of, of the cases, they use their own personal savings and networks to start businesses and they only get, you know, less than 50% of Latinos get funding that they ask for from banks. So we need to change a few things to be able to fix this. So access to capital is absolutely essential. And the second thing that we need to do is to promote also Latino businesses going into areas of the economy that have a higher survival rate and potential for growth. Bernardo, can you tell me more about our Latinos starting businesses at a higher rate and then the businesses themselves are growing at a slower rate compared to others? Yeah, that is correct. Well, and so the number of new businesses is growing at a higher rate than other demographics. So that growth rate of new businesses is 12% for Latino-owned businesses versus 5% for whites. But once the business is up and running, the growth rate is not necessarily higher, and certainly the survival rate is lower because uh, there are in, in some sectors that have higher failure rates and because of lack of just having the capabilities to scale up their businesses. So you're absolutely exactly. right. There is a difference between the number that are starting and how those are performing once they start. Very helpful. Dominica, 
Your program at Aspen Institute states that it's committed to diversity of thought and inclusive growth. Can you tell us a bit more about your work at the Aspen Institute? What we do at Latinos in Society is we focus on building long-term economic growth and ensuring that Latinos have an upward uh, trajectory and that they can fully realize their potential and their American dream. We are great contributors to this economy. Um, we are now quantifying how we contribute through our businesses. Um, we're also more than ever uh, educated and taking advantages of, um, of the opportunities in diverse sectors. Um, but what we find is that at large, Latinos are not represented. Um, we are not visible. And so we are misunderstood. The most exciting thing for me about the report that McKinsey did, I will say, is myself as a Latina and the community itself is that we felt seen by such a big brand. And that had not happened. And then seen in an authentic way where the report wasn't just pandering to big numbers of Latinos, great potential, but it got to the point that um, this group is going to be left behind. This group has the tremendous potential, $2.3 trillion worth of, of, of growth if our businesses grow, jobs created, 6.6 million jobs. And yet um, it's deferred, it's stalled. And it could literally be out of reach if we're not uh, proactive about the, the interventions necessary. And, and that's what the work that we're doing at Aspen is about, is not just having this one report, um, but really taking solutions that are co-created from the community. And that co-creation is what inspires young people to be owners of their destiny and not victims of circumstance. And, and that, I think, is why I'm so proud of Latinos and, and in America in that we live to our, our sayings, as many dichos, al mal tiempo buena cara, at bad times, a good face. And even in the midst of the pandemic, when we were so hard hit, 20% of us in terms of unemployment rate, uh, Latinas having to leave the workplace to take care of their children and their parents, we were still one of the most hopeful groups and most positive groups in the country and uh, ventured out to start more businesses. And many of them are driven by young people. Um, that uh, in seeing their parents fall a little bit into despair, um, kind of refuse to do so. And I think that that is the story of America. So I don't see a difference between the Latino community and what the American narrative is and how it's been for Italians and Irish and every other group. And the report captured it, but the report also is, is a tale of if we don't do anything about it, if we don't um, intervene to bring the resources to this community, it's too large of a community to fail. It will bring the rest of the country down. And that's why it's not a Latino issue. It's an American issue. So powerful, Dominica. Thank you yeah. for sharing that. Inspiring. Thanks, Dominica. Bernardo, what are your thoughts on mentorship for the Latino community? Well, and I, I think that beyond mentorship, which is absolutely critical, I, I think that the Latino business leaders have a huge responsibility. Unlike other demographics, and think about how inspirational somebody like Ross Brewer from Walgreens is and the role that she plays with women and with African-American women in the community. Many business leaders decide to put on hold getting involved after, after they retire from whatever roles they have. And I think that needs to change. A lot of it has to do with role modeling and a lot of, of it has to do with inspiration and I think Latino leaders, myself included, need to get involved earlier. So 
beyond just formal mentorship, there's a lot of role modeling and inspiration that we need to provide to our people. In our first segment, we talked about the dynamics within the Latino economy and the community's economic outlook. Now let's dive deeper into potential solutions. Latinos have a sizable wealth gap compared to the white peers, and median Latino wealth stands at about 20% of that of white households. Bernardo, can you help us drill down into this a little bit more? We know that U.S.-born Latinos, for example, have greater wealth and income prospects compared to foreign-born Latinos. Why is this? Yes, well, it, it, it's uh, in big part because of opportunity. Um, you know, first-generation uh, Latinos go through the educational process um, and have access to better jobs than maybe their parents did. So it is about going through um you know, the, the, the whole journey and process that allows them just to have better outcomes in terms of, of income. And the income over time then generates the wealth that builds from one generation to the next. Dominica, how can we ensure that foreign-born Latinos have access to sustainable and inclusive growth earlier in their immigration journey? When we think of new immigrants, it's, it's really important to think about how do we create on-ramps to integrate them into just mainstream living. Uh, Because when we don't do that, then they become a subset of the community. And then they're they're not able to plug into the resources. So we're we're talking about Latino entrepreneurs, for example. And and the, the journey is always one that if the job opportunity doesn't present itself, then you create it. And you create it based on the talents and the skills that you have. So whether it's a good meal that you can cook or a clean home that you can have or a beautiful garden or landscape that you have, then that becomes sort of your first point of entry and you start connecting uh, with others. Um, However, if you don't have the education or uh, plug into the resources to grow your businesses, to understand financial systems, uh, to, to be able to market yourself as a professional, then you've created just uh, another job for yourself and not, not, not have the opportunity, opportunity for economic mobility or to scale your business. So for foreign-born Latinos that come in and, and came for economic um, opportunity in the United States, uh, it's important to have Hispanic chambers of commerce. It's important to have entrepreneur-serving organizations that are culturally competent and culturally relevant um, as they onboard um, new immigrants, new Latino immigrants. Now, professional um, Latino immigrants, those that have degrees or are architects or dentists or lawyers in their home countries, there's also a struggle because their degrees are not valued like they are in their home countries. So they also have to connect to networks. And in those networks, understand how do they get certified once again or what kind of credentialing they need to go through in this country. Uh, because it would be, it's, it's a tragedy when you have a former dentist, when we need dentists in this country, still be a taxi driver years later, right? So that onboarding of the professional Latino, especially if they don't have family networks here, uh, then the community networks are, are extremely important. So it's access, but it's also the infrastructure of opportunity that needs to be offered by that uh, local community. Bernardo, I want to explore a bit more this median wealth gap. Latinos have about 20% of the household wealth of white households. Why is that? How should we think about it? Yes, uh, Colin, let, let, let's go to some of the 
root causes on why this is. I mean, the majority of the difference between wealth that you see of Latinos and non-Latinos happens because of intergenerational transfers. And that is really we're talking about inheritances between one generation and the next. And so the the huge difference that happens there is that uh, Latinos, um, only 5% of Latinos get intergenerational transfers compared with more than 20% of whites. And when they do receive an inheritance, it's a third of the size of what whites receive. And so their starting position is very different, um, not only because of the income that they're generating, but because of, uh, again, the starting point that they have. And that also explains why from one generation to the next, then you have the differences happening. It's because the next generations not only get higher income, but they have a little bit of a better starting point than what their parents had when they arrived to the U.S. That's one of the most compelling explanations of why the difference persists. But it's also one of the reasons why this is something that's going to take generations rather than years to be solved. We've explored Latinos as workers and their economic mobility. We've explored them as entrepreneurs, as well as in terms of their wealth gap. I'd like to shift now to Latinos as consumers. The report stated that there's about 160 billion nearly of unsatisfied demand for Latino consumers. What can we do to better address the needs of Latino consumers? Yeah, so we need to understand what's driving that. And what's driving that is really three factors, really. One has to do with access. The second one has to do with income, and the third one has to do with just satisfaction with the products and services that are out there. So going one by one, one is about access, just making sure, again, that Latinos, where they live, you know, have access to all the different categories of products and services that they would be able and would be willing to pay for if they were available. So it's it's no... Surprise again to talk about food deserts, but it's it's a, a lot more than just food deserts. It's across many different categories, in, including telco and uh, housing and, and others' uh, health, etc. cetera. Uh, the second one has to do with income, which is an obvious one. And, and, you know, once income goes up, then, you know, Latinos will have, you know, higher access to products and services that they cannot pay for today. I think that the recent, um, you know, COVID pandemic was a great example on how vulnerable the, you know, th- this particular uh, part of, of the U.S. population is as they had the biggest drop in terms of employment, in terms of consumption of any demographic group. And then the final thing has to do with satisfaction, and that is really providing products and services that cater to the needs and preferences of of this population. And it's interesting, we came up and we're doing a study now that goes much more in detail, but in many cases, we're talking about Latinos willing to pay you know, 10% or higher a premium for products and services if they were catered to their specific needs. And this is not only a matter of language, it's a matter of just, you know, the product and services really fulfilling uh, the desires and needs that this part of the population has. Interesting. Dominica, what would you like to see from business leaders, from policymakers to address this Latino consumption gap? What I found interesting in how McKinsey framed the consumption gap, and I hadn't thought of it this way before, is how Latino businesses are uniquely positioned to fill that gap because they understand what that nostalgia for certain products are from their home countries. 
but also specific needs for the Latino community. And so it got me to thinking about how it, it, it is the, the access to capital and the support to, to understand how to grow their businesses, but you have a group of people that intuitively know the market, right? Without having all the analysis, they know what's missing because they're missing it. And, and then they put together business plans to, to satisfy as best they can. Um, what we need are you know, more uh, innovations around financial products, quality financial products that can help Latino businesses scale their companies. Um, and there are some examples that, um, that I've been following and I'm really excited to work with companies like Coca-Cola. 30% of the Coca-Cola bottlers are Latinos in the United States. And so they're going to understand certain drinks that uh, are reminiscent with certain foods um, in the Coca-Cola family. And many Coca-Cola has bought some of these products. Those are the things that need to happen more and more. It's a co-creation. It's a public-private partnership where we're seeing our products um, made by Latinos for Latinos. And so we're creating wealth. We're satisfying the demand. And, and that's what's so unique about the McKinsey Report, that it didn't just offer up Latinos um, for consumption. Oh, they need more shoes. So Nike, please make more shoes. It's more about, well, maybe there is a Latino version of Nike, uh, a own company that can compete for the market. And so, you know, I, I, I see glimpses of it. If, if there was a more intentional effort um, to understand the potential of the Latino market, going to businesses and satisfying the consumption needs, then that's exciting. And I'd, I'd like to profile more and more of those companies. Those are great examples. Thank you for sharing those. I'd love to shift to looking at where we are today, but more in a historical perspective. Bernardo, let's start with you and then shift over to you, Domenico. Where are you seeing progress in access to this Latino economic opportunity? Thanks, Quelle. And um, I, I think that the trends are very clear, right? So I, you know, even if you take the four different roles that the study, um, you know, uh, took, in each one of them, you see progress, uh, structural progress in, in, the, in the last few years, maybe with a retrenching that we have seen during COVID. But the, the trend is very clear. It's very clear in terms of intergenerational mobility. That's maybe where you have the highest level. Um, I'll, I'll give you a number here that was really surprising when we did this study. Um, if, if your parents were at the 25th percentile, the chance of, of their children is to be at the 46th percentile. So again, the growth in terms of mobility is, uh, is absolutely uh, fantastic and happening all over the place. To me, it's much more about how can we accelerate this to achieve the, the entire potential of the demographic uh, because it's going in a positive trend. It's just not going fast enough. And as we said at the beginning, this is no longer an issue of Latinos alone. Is if, if this trend doesn't accelerate, it's going to have an impact on the overall economy. Absolutely. Dominica, in your interactions with young Latino leaders, are you seeing progress, a change in culture or the optimism that you were mentioning before? I am. I see uh, young people that are socially consciously aware, not only of their own progress, but um, of the power of investing in, in their education, of being uh, also connected to brands and businesses that do good for our community and that are inclusive of our own narrative. 
Um, I, I have a grown son and um, he, he's very intentional about how he shops. And uh, it, it's really important for him that he support products and businesses that, that do good by the community, by Black and Latino communities and Indigenous communities. And, and we know that in general, Generation Z, millennial generation, we already had seen that. So I'm optimistic. Um, I, I think the one piece that I worry about is a little bit of, of getting frustrated and discouraged. Uh, there are some hard challenges just from climate change to even as we tackle structural racism and discrimination. It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take all of us and that intentionality. And, and optimism is a requisite for change. There is no substitution for it. That's what makes me both excited and a little nervous about when we all get a little too frustrated and, and, and in our silos. And uh, because cynicism is really uh, what we have to guard against. But overall, I'm very optimistic. Wonderful. We are back from our break and talking to Dominica Lynch and Bernardo Sichel. Thank you both for sharing your insights with us today. I love the examples of different Latino brands, the examples of the racial wealth gap, uh, and also the state of entrepreneurship and more business starts in the Latino community, but a real gap in terms of financing and growth. We're wrapping up each of our Future of America episodes with a rapid fire Q&A. Dominica, I'll start with you. Is there a book or an article you've read recently that excites you about a more sustainable and inclusive future? Yes, absolutely. A book that was written during the pandemic by a woman, um, and it's called What We Owe Each Other, A New Social Contract for a Better Society. And it's written by Minushi Shafiq, and she is the director of the London School of Economics. And I was so inspired by it because one of the first stories that she opened up with was about being in Ecuador, which is my home country, and um, witnessing the birth of a, a little girl there in the Amazon forest and how um, her parents were going to name her um, after her, Manisha. And she just wondered the trajectory of these two lives. And in, in, and in this moment of the pandemic for her, it, it's really about all hands on deck and recognizing uh, the uh, interdependency that we have, um, you know, just all around the world, the pandemic brought us together how um, what affects one of us affects all of us. And, and then she gives some solutions. Um, and most importantly, um, she made me very aware of, um, even in the United States, how many generations it's going to take to go from low income to middle income in different countries. And I was a little heartbroken to see that in the United States, she projected five generations, which is not my experience, and it isn't uh, the experience of that story that I, I, I opened up with, that from one generation in this country, you can go from uh, cleaning a fancy hotel to becoming uh, a medical doctor. Um, so I highly recommend it. It's very inspirational, very timely, and, um, and a lot of good wisdom there. What makes you optimistic that we can achieve sustainable and inclusive growth? Uh, local leaders, local leaders, national leaders, um, the work at the Aspen Institute of, of convening thoughtful people that care so much about human progress, our collective shared humanity and, and a, a, you know, a, a good life experience. It's a short life. And, um, and to bring them together, to roll our sleeves, sleeves up and to, to say, you know, we can make, we can change this. And, and I think that as long as 
we could see it at the local level and then and then bridge that with national leaders, then real change will happen. So that's what makes me optimistic, particularly in, in where I am, where I sit at the Aspen Institute. And what's the one thing that listeners can do today to help promote sustainable and inclusive growth for Latinos in particular? Through this journey, I, th- I think if, if we're talking about scaling, accelerating change, like Bernardo said, something that I'm also doing personally, be mindful of, of your own company's habits, where you work, where you work. So that means even the companies that you, that we own. But for example, at the Aspen Institute, I'm now sitting on the procurement committee, really want to understand, um, you know, who our supply, our suppliers are. And if there's an opportunity to create, um, spaces for Black and Latino and Indigenous um, businesses um, so that we can walk our talk, especially at the Aspen Institute. I'm, I'm really proud that my colleagues were, were being very intentional about it. Um, I want to also say that w- we've learned that uh, in, in moments of, of crises, we, we, it, it's, change is very difficult. It's necessary, but it's very difficult. And, and I think when it comes to even how we procure services and goods, efficiency will always trump equity always. So we just have to be careful and mindful. And uh, so I'm paying more attention even, uh, you know, where I work in terms of our procurement habits and making sure that that's, that's a door that we should open and be intentional about. Thank you, Dominica. Bernardo, I'd love to shift to you. Is there a book or an article that you've read recently that excites you about a more sustainable and inclusive future? There actually is, uh, Quell, and as part of the work that I do combining consumer and technology, I, I went back to um, a, an article and a presentation by a South African um, author named Boosie Redeby. And um, the, the article and the presentation that he gave at, at Harvard's Growth Lab at the Symposium on Inclusive Growth and Development is called Reinventing the Corner Store. The premise of what he came up with is how to give access to technology and how to build ecosystem of corner stores so that they can get more involved, not only on the financial services, but, um, you know, create some scale and procurement and really uh, generate jobs and well-being to the owners of those stores. And there's really no reason why that's something that needs to be confined to South Africa or Latin America or the emerging market. It's very much the reality of many Latinos in the U.S., so when I saw that, again, I got inspired and thought about the impact that it could have uh, at home. And um, I really recommend that it's a, it's a you know, the, the, the paper is dense, but the presentation and the, uh, that you can see there on the growth lab at Harvard is uh, very inspiring. Wonderful. What makes you optimistic that we can achieve sustainable and inclusive growth? I would say two things from my side. So the first one is, you know, the resilience that I have seen um, from Latinos uh, during COVID and the awareness um, that has come uh, despite the rhetoric that might happen on the political side, but the, the awareness, again, that people are having that uh, inclusivity is an absolute must to achieve our common goals in the future. So I, I would say those two things, the resilience part that we have seen and, and the awareness give me hope that we are heading in the right direction. And what's one thing that listeners can do today to help promote sustainable and inclusive growth? I think it's critical not to leave this to policymakers. I think it's about our daily decisions that make the difference at the end of the day. If you're a business owner, I would say, um, you know, provide equitable pay 
uh, most likely those frontline workers that you have are Latinos, but also create, um, you know, job opportunities and internships, et cetera, um, you know, to, to Latinos that would be amazing. And as a consumer, again, Dominica touched upon this, is about our daily choices on what we buy and what we consume. And so it's about the little things that each one of us do on a daily basis that make up, you know, the big impact over the length of time. Thank you, Dominica and Bernardo. That was Dominica Lynch, Executive Director of the Latinos and Society Program at the Aspen Institute, and Bernardo Sitchell, a partner in McKinsey's Chicago office. I'm Quaylen Ellengrude. You have been listening to McKinsey's Future of America podcast series. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for listening to the Future of America podcast. We're thrilled you're joining us as we explore the journey toward a more sustainable and inclusive and growing economy. Be sure to subscribe to the Future of America podcast on whichever platform you use and check out our insights and research on these topics at mckinsey.com slash future of America. Thanks for being a part of the Future of America.